people will never remain free if they are not willing, if need be, to fight for their vital interests. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. Grace Calloway and pass the ammunition. The Restoration Hour with Pastor Eli James. Okay, so folks, what we were going to talk about after the VK discussion, and uh, you know, we'll see if we can get a better connection next week. But uh, the VK.com... Uh, is now censoring anybody who criticizes Jews, which is a power for the course for all of these big conglomerate uh, internet sites that are, most of them are run by Jews. Now, whether VK.com is run by Jews, I'm not sure. If it's a Russian uh, state operation, Putin has gone on record in defending the Jews, and he's also opposed to Holocaust denial, etc., etc. So, uh, obviously, the Jews have put pressure on VK.com because dissent against the Jews is not permitted worldwide. It's simply not permitted. But here at Eurofolk Radio, because uh, we go through, we have to jump through hoops to get online without offending the Jews, although they hear about us, uh, but we, uh, we disguise uh, the, the people we use to get online. And so they're, they're going to have to do some, uh, well, they'll have to hire a really good <laughs> hacker uh, to break into our feed and uh, try to silence us. Uh, so that, that's the name of that game. They may eventually do that. Because we tell more truth about the Jews and Jewish perfidy than any other website, bar none. Bar none. And then my, our sister site, Anglo-SaxonIsrael.com, again, that's www.Anglo-SaxonIsrael.com, also does the same thing. We expose the evil, conniving Jews for what they really are, the synagogue of Satan masquerading as Israel in the world today. They've been masquerading as the chosen people for the last 2,000 years. And we have exposed all that on these two websites. So be that said, uh, we're trying to understand why in the world should anybody believe that the Jews are God's chosen people when they do so much evil. However, the average member of the public has no idea that the Jews control all mass media. They control all mass media and will censor us constantly. But we are not allowed to dissent against their censorship. So it's really a one-way street. They have all the power of the media. We have none. And we are struggling, struggling to get the word out because they have the power of censorship and they pass laws in every single country, including America, to prevent dissent against them. Now, it's not a lawful status in America. It is in most every other country in the world where you are simply forbidden by law to complain about the Jews. 
you can be thrown in jail, as in Germany. You can be thrown in jail for dissenting against the Holocaust narrative. In America, you cannot be thrown in jail, but the Jews can put pressure on you. They can uh, they can put all kinds of they can call your telephone service provider and say, "Hey, Eli, he's criticizing the Jews. Unplug his telephone." It's the, they can do all kinds of things. Well, they have to break the law to do that. So you know they take a risk when they do that and open themselves up to a lawsuit if they do things like that. But they have so much control over content anyway. And they have these blacklists. The ADL has a blacklist on on which the Eurofolk Radio was number 24 on their list. I think it was 40 40, uh, organizations. AngloSaxonIsrael.com is one of their top anti-quote anti-Semitic, that is anti-Jewish websites in the world. And they shut us down in 2012 for exposing the Jews for what they really are. And so they cannot stand the light of day. They cannot have anybody criticize them. And it's amazing that these politicians, even though they will say, you have a right to say it, they will deny your right to say it if you criticize the Jews. That's simply the bottom line. Fortunately, uh, even RBN, Uh, Those of you who have been listening to my shows for a long time probably recall the days I was on uh, Republic Broadcasting Network. It was only for six months, but the Voice of Christian Israel was uh, a Sunday morning feature on Republic Broadcasting Network uh, prior to 2012. I forget exactly what year. But Art Jones was being interviewed on RBN this morning, and he just railed on the Jews. And he was allowed to speak freely on RBN, okay? So so was I. I was railing on the Jews freely on RBN as well. However, they did kick me off because I wouldn't, I never changed the subject. <laughs> I was always exposing the Jews as the non-Israelites and imposters that they are, okay? And so nevertheless, uh, after I left, after I basically it was kicked off, the... Um, I was informed that my show, my Sunday morning show, had more uh, call-in participation than any other show they'd ever had. So I know that the show was very popular. So maybe Art Jones will get some donations, hopefully come his way, from appearing on that show. So anyway, uh, we'll try to save that for next week. And uh, uh, somehow we got disconnected on Skype, and uh, that shouldn't have happened, but it did. So uh, let's go with today's topic, which is Races in Chaos, Part 2. And this is a book by uh, W.G. Finlay of South Africa. He was the editor of the um, Covenant Message, a magazine that was put out for at least 20 years in South Africa. He was the chief editor and frequent contributor to many of the articles. It was a white separatist magazine teaching Christian identity uh, from the you know the, the races, the separate races from Genesis 3.15, etc., etc. And so let me just back up into chapter 2, because uh, Daryl and I had covered this oh, a few weeks back before this coronavirus business started up. And we've done a couple of shows on coronavirus in the interim and haven't gotten back 
to uh, part two of Races in Chaos by W.G. Finlay. Okay, so he's talking about Noah. In the midst of an age of moral and physical declension, this is at the very end of chapter two, and let me just go ahead and copy this and put it in the chat room because uh, people need to know uh, that uh, this is what uh, uh, the article is and how well written this actually is by W.G. Finlay. So I have to open up the chat room again, but I'll be there momentarily. And so here we go. This is the link to the article. Uh, okay, I'm sorry, that's the wrong one. <laughs> We're having nothing but trouble today. Okay, races and chaos. But that's a good link that I just put in there. That's actually for tomorrow's show. So here is for today's show. And your, your folk radio restoration hour. There we go. Okay, W.G. Finlay, races in chaos. And so I was just reading the third to the last paragraph of chapter two. In the midst of an age of moral and physical declension or decline, Noah, who was perfect in his generations, which means that his descent, his line of descent was perfect and uh, un, uh, unmixed, emerges as the sole descendant of the Seth line worthy of survival. He was blameless in character and conduct, and his righteousness and integrity were manifested in his walking with God. While much conjecture obtains as to the ultimate elucidation of the words perfect in his generations, uh, the, the context of the chapter and the conditions obtaining indicate the correct trend of interpretation. In the Pentateuch and Haftorahs, a commentary on the early chapters of the Bible, the late chief rabbi Dr. J. H. Hertz states, quote, the rabbis point out that these words may be understood either as praise or as blame of Noah. It may be understood as stating that despite the depravity which raged around him, he remained unspotted and untainted by corruption. Noah was of pure descent from Seth, a fitting person to begin anew in the post-Diluvian times. Now, of course, the Jews and the Judeo-Christians simply interpret this as being morally perfect, but the generations spoken of are the line of descent, Zerah. This is a physical line of descent. It has he's he's already it's already stated that he was righteous. So why why repeat it? Why repeat that? Because the first perfect in his generations is talking about his line of descent, pure line of descent. Last paragraph in chapter two. It was to the days of Noah that our Lord referred as typifying the conditions which would obtain prior to his second coming. Those days were marked by races and chaos. Our days, too, are marked by races and chaos. The parallel is too real to permit dismissal. As the circumstances are the same, it would be profitable to reconsider the events following God's indignation at this catastrophic violation of his basic command, given no less than nine times in the first chapter of Genesis. Each creature was to reproduce after its kind. That's pretty clear if you read Genesis. <laughs> and uh, verse 11, Genesis 1.11 says, the reproduce has seed within itself and reproduces kind after kind. 
Okay, so this is a, a typical definition of genetics that these animals can reproduce. They have their seed within themselves, as all species do, and reproduce kind after kind. That's a, a, almost a perfect definition of genetic descent of, of a species. And species breed true. We all know this, all geneticists know this, that species breed true unless somebody deliberately tampers with the breeding process. Okay? So, chapter 3. The post-Diluvian civilization. The post-Diluvian history is one closely akin to that of anti-Diluvian civilization. Rebellion against God became the rule rather than the exception. The attempt to build the Tower of Babel provides the picture of rebellion rather than of acquiescence in God's word. Rather than submit to him, they began to provide against the visitation of his wrath in consequence of their evil thoughts and intentions. Quote, now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Genesis 11.6 The Tower of Babel was never fully completed. God intervened and confounded the language of the people and scattered them throughout the world. This activity of God is followed immediately by the genealogy of Abraham and his departure from Ur of the Chaldees to Haran. And with Abraham, here known as Abraham first, and then his name was changed to Abraham because he would be the father of many nations, not all nations. And he was certainly not the father of the Jewish nation. He was the father of the Saxons, because Isaac was his first son, his only son by Sarah. He was the father of the Anglo-Saxons, and he was the father of the 12th, grandfather of the 12 tribes of Israel. All of these lines of descent are traced meticulously in the Bible, and intermarriage between these lines of descent and other lines of descent such as the line of descent of the Hittites, the Canaanites, the Kenites, etc., was absolutely forbidden. Later on, other tribes are forbidden. The Yahweh names very specific tribes that we are not to intermarry with. So, And because they were not to intermarry with anybody outside their own race, uh, there's, no, there's no possibility that he would permit intermarriage with blacks, Asians, Mexicans, etc. Simply would not permit it. Why did God call Abraham to a separate life, a life cut off from all associations with his former life? Genesis 12.1 Why throughout his lifetime and those of his son Isaac and his grandsons Esau and Jacob did God demand a separate existence? Yes, he did demand a separate existence. Abraham of the line of Shem, the son of Noah, lived in an environment which is graphically illustrated in the 18th and 19th chapters of Genesis. In these chapters is revealed the repetition of the antediluvian approach to life, that is the pre-diluvian, anti-diluvian approach to life, wherein, quote, every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, describing the average Adamite in that, in that time. And, of course, Yahshua Messiah told us very specifically that when he returns, just before he returns, that we would experience very similar circumstances. It shall be as in the days of Noah, quite specifically it says that. Okay, it shall be as in the day. There'd be a lot of race mixing going on, and people would be evil continuously, except for a remnant. 
just as Noah and his family were a remnant that were obedient to him. So let me quote Genesis 12:1 since he references it. Now Yahweh had said unto Abraham, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred, because he was related to these Aramites and these Chaldeans. Uh, these people were, in fact, white, but they were disobedient white. In fact, his, his own father was a, uh, a heathen who worshipped other gods. And from thy kindred, thy, thy heathen kindred, thy, your blaspheming kindred, and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I'll go to verse 3. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now, since he was the father of the Ishmaelites through Hagar, and the father of the Indo-Aryans through Keturah, and the father of the Anglo-Saxons through Isaac, none of these people are Jews. In fact, the Jews are not even mentioned here. So, how in the world can the Jews claim that Genesis 12.3 applies to them when they are not even mentioned, and when all these other tribes, the Ishmaelites and the Indo-Aryans of Keturah, are also his descendants, okay? So, but we know that the Bible narrows down this line of descent because it excludes, ultimately, from the covenants, the, the Indo-Aryans, and the Ishmaelites. The Ishmaelites ultimately became known as the Arabs. Okay? So this is uh, where it stands. So the line of descent traces from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and his 12 sons. And it never goes beyond those 12 sons. These 12 tribes of Israel are the direct line of descent from Abraham. And these blessings, these covenant, the covenant relationship that was established here in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, devolves upon the 12 tribes of Israel and no one else. No one else is invited in. No one can marry out and no one can marry in. That's the reality of these covenants. Okay, Very ex explicitly stated in the Bible that we cannot intermarry with these other races. Otherwise, the covenant relationship established between Yahweh and Abraham's descendants will be uh, violated will be violent, okay? So let me continue here. With these, oh, uh, okay, why throughout his lifetime and those of his son Isaac and grandsons Esau and Jacob did God demand a separated existence? Abraham of the line of Shem, the son of Noah, lived in an environment which is graphically illustrated in the 18th and 19th chapters of Genesis of Sodom and Gomorrah, the place of Lot's abode, approximately 400 years after the great flood and immediately prior to the birth of Isaac, the scripture state, quote, And the Lord said, Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it, which has come unto me, and if not, I will know it. Unquote. Genesis 18.20. The author continues, The cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, their sin very grievous. The conditions thus obtaining are described as sinful and grievous. As has been stated before, the circumstances creating these conditions are clearly set out in the 17th chapter of Luke's Gospel, 
and the seventh verse of the epistle of Jude, the corruption of flesh was again evident. Miscegenation became rife, culminating in an overall picture of abomination, which caused Yahweh to speak of it in the terms, their sin is very grievous. With these conditions obtaining, the love of God for his world once again came to the fore, that by by judging it, <laughs> right, he chastises the Israelite nation because he loves us. He determined to exercise his sovereignty in the affairs of, he says, men, but Adamites. Respecting his gift of free will given at the time of creation, Yahweh began to set in motion the wheels for the rehabilitation of Adamkind. Chapter 4, The Abrahamic Family. The first step in the plan of God and his cure for the malady of races and chaos was the call of Abram. Now, I'm kind of curious as to why uh, the, the author doesn't use the name of Yahweh because all of the other South Africans that I've ever dealt with, uh, they all use the name of Yahweh. And uh, so maybe he was just isolated in his position and didn't interact with other, you know, what they called Israel vision in South Africa. So Finlay, for some reason, never uh, latched on to the sacred names as most of the South African identity people have done. So it's really kind of interesting that he never did that. But in any case, let's get back to the document here. I am now in chapter 4, the Abrahamic family. From the prevailing chaos, severance from the abomination of miscegenation, segregation. This command to withdraw and be separate was a new beginning, a beginning designed ultimately to bring peace and blessing to all the nations of the earth, Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3. And that is correct, because the word there is um, oh, mashpeka, I believe is the Hebrew word, which means tribes, families, uh, genomes, etc. So we're talking, yeah, we, the Anglo-Saxon people, the true Israelites of the world, the Caucasian Israelites, have been a blessing to the world. No other people can say that. Certainly not the Jews. Certainly not the Muslims. Abraham, the Hebrew, and his wife, Sarai, were thus chosen by God as the parents of a new people whom God intended to create. Now remember, the bloodline from Adam and Eve through Seth has been maintained in its purity through all the patriarchs from Seth on down. Never mind that they were surrounded by evil Adamites. They remained righteous. They remained pure. So as he correctly states here, God chose uh, Abraham and Sarah to be the parents of a new and more righteous people. God intended to create, school, and guide in order that his perfect will should be operative in the earth. Was this new beginning founded on corruption? Were the parents of the new race the product of miscegenation? No. The ancestry of Abraham and the purity of his racial descent from Shem is revealed in the genealogical chart in Genesis 11. The genealogy of Sarai, however, is not given in the scriptures. But Abram himself provides her racial descent as being of the same origin as his own. 
The narrative in the 20th chapter of Genesis records the sojourn of Abram in the land of Gerar. In answering Abimelech, the king, Abram stated, quote, She, Sarai, is my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. Genesis 20.12 Sarai was thus Abram's stepsister of the same race. Thus the beginning of the new people was founded, not on the union of two widely differing ethnic groups, but rather in two people of the same racial origin, indeed having the same father but not the same mother. Now this, this is very confusing to a lot of people, and we can only speculate that the laws against... Uh, 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 what's it called? You know, I guess marrying your sister, <laughs> right? Uh, the, the genetic law against close marriages. Uh, this was not codified yet until the laws of Moses. And so the one possibility is that Yahweh permitted this because the numbers of Israelites, pure uh, unmiscegenated and righteous Israelites, or in this case, Adamites, Noahites, Shemites, because Abraham was a Shemite, was very small in number, and so that law was suspended. He can do whatever he pleases in making and breaking his own law if, it, if it's necessary, but we can't break his law and uh, marry our cousins, our first cousins. That's where incest begins, marrying, well, that's where it ends, actually. Uh, it begins with having sex with your mother or your father. And then uh, your sister, your brother, but uh, it, it ends with the first cousin. Apparently, second cousins are okay. So, nevertheless, this law was not codified until the laws of Moses. So, Yahweh probably either never, this law did not apply yet, or he suspended it because of the small number of Adamites, uh, un, unmixed and righteous Adamites, just as in uh, Genesis chapter 6, but there we have eight, there we have eight Adamites, and according to the laws of genetics, as I know them, uh, you can, you can uh, avoid incest if you start with eight, because you interbreed with the fourth, the fourth person's offspring. Uh, there's charts that, that demonstrate this. It's too complicated to to talk about without a chart. Okay. Anyway, so he says another curious thing is Sarah is my sister. Why would he tell the uh, Abimelech that she is his sister and not his wife? Why? Oh no, no, he does say, and she became my wife. Genesis twenty twelve. Sarai was thus Abram's stepsister of the same race as well as his wife. Thus the beginning of the new people was founded, not on the union of two widely differing ethnic groups, but rather in two people of the same racial origin. They were Adamites, descended from Seth. During the ensuing 25 years subsequent to his call, Abram received the reiteration of the promise of a son on numerous occasions. The history of the birth of the firstborn to Abraham is recorded in the 16th chapter of Genesis. This account, together with that of the following chapter, 17th, adds emphasis to this question of racial purity. Sarah was 75 years of age, and it ceased to be with 
her after the manner of women. I guess she uh, she pro- entered menopause, but then came out of it. Is that what uh, we're being told here? Ceased to be after the manner of women. Well past the childbearing age, Sarah gave her Egyptian handmaid Hagar to Abraham that he might have a son, an heir, in whom God could declare his purpose. This instance of the birth of Ishmael to Abraham is seized on by many to prove that mixed marriages are not forbidden in the scriptures. But the 17th chapter of Genesis should soon dispel this delusion. It should be clearly understood that the actions of the various characters in the scriptures were, in most instances, the dictates of their own desires. This is the expression of free will. These desires and con- the consequence of their realization, however, should not be taken to consider- constitute the will of God. This is established in the case of Abraham. His desire was not the lusting after the flesh, but in his ardor to be of service to his God and his plan, he took Hagar and she bore him a son. Now, in my opinion, Hagar was a Hamite from Egypt, and the Hamites were still white in those days, just because Ham and Shem and Japheth were all the white Adamic offspring of Noah and his wife Naamah. And uh, if you just look at all of the statuary in Egypt, 99% of the statues show clearly Nordic, that is Anglo-Saxon, Caucasian faces. Rarely is there an image of a Negroid face, which proves beyond any shadow of a doubt that the Hamites were white, and also the DNA of King Tut was tested, and he proved to be 97% white. The other 3% they were able not, not able to determine. Okay, So very, very clearly, the Hamites were white. So his marriage to her was not a forbidden marriage. It was not race mixing by any stretch of the imagination. Okay, So this is what uh, actually... These are the facts, folks, and uh, the author is trying to bring the facts to our attention, that these false claims by the universalists who have translated and interpreted the scriptures falsely desire to include race mixing as one of God's purposes. No, it is not. Okay? Even though Abraham was prompted only by his desire to be of service, The fulfillment of his desire was not in accordance with the will of God. Ishmael was rejected by God as being the son and heir through whom his world rehabilitative purpose was to be continued. And this in spite of Abraham's plea for his son. Quote, And Abraham said unto God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. And God said, Sarah thy wife shall bear thee a son indeed, and I will establish my covenant with him. That son, who has not yet been born, for an everlasting covenant, and with his seed after him, with his progeny, with his direct descendants, and nobody else. Anybody outside of his progeny is not covenanted, including Ishmael and the sons of Keturah. And as for Ishmael, I have heard thee. Behold, I have blessed him, and will make him fruitful and multiply him exceedingly. We have a lot of Arabs in the world today. Twelve princes, these are the Ishmaelite princes, shall he beget, and I will make him a great nation. These Ishmaelite nations were white for a good 4,000 years or more 
until they converted to Islam and began race mixing. But my covenant will I establish with Isaac, which Sarah shall bear unto thee at this set time in the next year. Unquote. Genesis 17, verses 18 through 21. So very clearly, Yahweh has excluded Ishmael from the covenant. He will also exclude the sons of Keturah, even though Keturah most likely is also a Shemite. It's possible that she was also a Japhethite. And, of course, the Japhethites were known as the whitest of the white in the Old World. Why was Ishmael rejected as being the next step in God's great plan? He was born of Abraham, to whom God had declared his world-embracing intention, and through whom this intention was ultimately to be realized. If, as so many believe, there is no difference in race, why did God not use this son of the Egyptian handmaid? He was the seed of Abraham. Well, because the, the straightforward answer is, His intention was to make the covenant with Isaac and not with Ishmael. Ishmael described as being a wild man. So Yahweh understood that Ishmael would be a wild man. Okay. Uh, Swamp Fox says, same with Azanath, Joseph's wife. She was white, mother of Manasseh and Ephraim. Thank you very much, Swamp Fox. She abode in Egypt, but even... Even there, uh, we are told, not in the Bible, but in um, in the Apocrypha, that she was a, a daughter of the priesthood of An. The priesthood of An is the priesthood of Enoch. An is short for Enoch. And so Enoch did have a priesthood established in Egypt, and uh, my understanding is Azanath was a descendant of of that priesthood. So she was more than likely a Shemite, more than likely a Shemite and descended from Enoch. So in any case, uh, even if she wasn't, even if she was a Hamite, it was still legal for Joseph to marry her because she was white. All the all 12 tribes, all 12 sons of Jacob had to find their wives among the Adamites then existing in the world. Most of them married Aramean women who were also Shemites. Okay, but uh, it's not forbidden for Adamites to intermarry. So let's continue. This is a, an excellent article, very clearly expounded by by W. G. Finlay. So he obviously wants to covenant Isaac and excludes Ishmael. He gives Ishmael a blessing, but he does not covenant him. He does not make a contract with him that his offspring would be special and would be the the, the light of the world, that, that uh, we would be the blessing to the other nations. Clearly, the Ishmaelites, Ishmaelites have not been a blessing to other nations. Only the descendants of Isaac have been a blessing to the nations of the world. Okay, so let's continue. Uh, Ishmael could not be a new beginning, but a continuity of existing corruption and nullifying of the separation demanded of Abraham. I disagree with this because uh, Hagar was definitely white. Hagar was definitely white. And uh, he's... uh, uh, he hasn't got any proof that she wasn't, but uh, let's let's buy his line. 
and continue. Ishmael, the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, and Abraham, the Hebrew, was rejected. Certainly Ishmael was rejected, but not because he was a non-white. Ishmael was 13 years of age when God stated his rejection of Abraham's firstborn. Abraham himself was 99 and Sarah 90. Well may Sarah have laughed when God declared that she would bear the promised son whom he would use and predestine according to his purpose. By the way, the word Isaac in the Hebrew means laughter, because she laughed out loud when Yahweh told her that she would get pregnant. Ha ha ha! You're joking, Yahweh! But God had waited until all the normal passions and lusts of life had died within Sarah before he intended that she should conceive and bear the promised son. And this was obviously a miraculous birth, folks, because her womb had dried up. This is almost an immaculate conception, not quite. In new beginning, a new beginning was made, not tainted by the prevailing conditions of life, but brought into being expressly at the creative word of God, of Yahweh, a new pure creation, Isaac, in whom and through whose seed all the nations of the earth be blessed. It doesn't mention the Jews, folks. It doesn't say anything about the Jews would be a blessing. Not a word. Full realization of God's intended purpose came to Abraham when the estrangement between his wife and her handmaid Hagar culminated in Sarah's demand that both the bondsmaid and her son be cast out of Abraham's family. Quote, And the thing was very grievous in Abraham's sight because of his son. We're talking here about Ishmael. And God said unto Abraham, Let it not be grievous in thy sight because of the lad and because of thy bondwoman. In all that Sarah hath said unto thee, hearken unto her voice, listen to your wife, Yahweh says to Abraham. For in Isaac shall thy seed be called. There's the famous verse. 21.12, folks. Genesis 21.12. Accordingly, Abraham sent Ishmael and his mother away from his following, and only as the descendants of Ishmael impinge on the history of the progeny of Isaac are they mentioned in the Holy Scriptures. Abraham's understanding of God's purpose in the rejection of his firstborn son is apparent in the 24th chapter of Genesis. Well, first of all, whether she was a, a Hamite, a Shemite, or a Japhethite, Hagar wasn't the right woman. Yahweh wanted Sarah. Because her seed was better. She was the right woman. You know, every man wants a... She's the one for me, (laughs) right? Well, Sarah was the one for Yahweh. And she is the one that he chose for Abraham. And that's the way it was. This chapter concerns the admonition of Abraham to his servant pertaining to the selection of a wife for Isaac. Quote, And Abraham said unto his eldest servant of his house, that ruled over all that he had, Put, I pray thee, thy hand under my thigh, and I will make thee swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that thou shalt not take a wife unto my son of the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. But thou shalt go unto my country and to my kindred, 
and take a wife unto my son Isaac. So right here we're told, as we have been told many times in Scripture, that we have to have nothing to do with Canaanites. We are to make no covenants, agreements, or intermarry with them. That's clear. I mean, no Judeo-Christian can argue against that. The Bible clearly says that. This statement by Abraham does not limit the prohibition against intermarriage to one particular race, as a casual reading of the above verses would seem to indicate. The word Canaanite had long since ceased to be expressive of racial designation and was ascribed to all races living within the geographical boundaries of what is today known as Palestine. So yeah, he was living amongst all these Canaanites. Some were cave Canaanites, living in caves, cave dwellers, troglodytes. Thus, Abraham's admonition to his servant was against any thought of procuring a wife for Isaac in the land wherein all races were mixed so freely. That is well stated. Because these Canaanite peoples had all intermarried, well, with the Kenites, the descendants of Cain. That We are told that in, uh, in many places, but it starts out in Genesis 15, verses 18 through 21, where the Kenites, the descendants of the Kenites are stated, you know, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Hittites, etc. And Esau married the Hittite women, which was a violation of Yahweh's racial uh, marriage laws. Okay. He continues, the national life of the Canaanites, governed as it was by their reverence of pagan gods and the license granted by this, namely the frolicking in the groves, will be dealt with in a later chapter. Abraham's servant was true to his word and traveled northwards to Nahor in the vicinity of Haran, from which Abraham was called by God. Here, divine guidance is evident. The choice of a bride for Isaac was not left to the discrimination of the servant. God led him to Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, who was the son of Milcah, the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor. Genesis 24.15 Recognition of divine guidance was given by the servant in his phrase for the God of Abraham, quote, And he said, Blessed be Yahweh Elohim of my master Abraham, who hath not left destitute my master of his mercy and his truth, I being in the way. Yahweh led me to the house of my master's brethren, unquote. Genesis 24, 27. Again, we are told this is Yahweh's doing. Just as it was Yahweh's doing that the elder shall serve the younger when Rebekah's womb was opened and Jacob, and I'm sorry, Esau was born first, and Jacob held on to his heel, but the elder shall serve the younger and the Edomites until about 1800 A.D. served Jacob for all that time. Yes, the the Jacobites, the Anglo-Saxon, Celtic, and Caucasian people, had numerous Edomite scribes, bankers, servants, tax collectors working for them, For all this time, the elder shall serve the younger. That prophecy was totally fulfilled. For over 4,000 years, it was fulfilled. Continuing. Thus, in the selection of Rebekah as the mother of the children of Isaac, the hand of God can be seen guarding against the contamination of the race. Well said. To Isaac, 
God confirmed his purpose in the reiteration of the covenant promises made to Abraham. Genesis 26.3 The twins, Esau and Jacob, born to Isaac, were raised in the same prohibition against defiling their segregation. When they should not uh, violate their segregation. When adulthood had been attained, this fact is clearly set out in the selection of a wife for Jacob. Quote, And Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said unto him, Thou shalt not take a wife of the daughters of Canaan. And by this time, uh, and uh, W.G. Finlay is absolutely correct, by this time, all 12 tribes, I'm sorry, all the nations of Canaan, which were devolved or had married into the Kenite tribe of Genesis chapter 15, had become known as Canaanite tribes. They were still the descendants of Cain. They had Cain's blood, Kenite blood, in their veins, and they still do to this day. The twins, Esau and Jacob, born to Isaac, were raised in the same prohibitions. And it continues, and then when... uh, He found a wife for Jacob, and Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said unto him, Thou shalt not take a wife of the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Padan Aram, again Aram. Aram was a Shemite. That territory is named after Aram, the Shemite. To the house of Bethuel, my mother's father, and take thee a wife from thence of the daughters of Laban, my mother's brother. So he specifically sent uh, servant to that particular uh, Jacob to that particular person. Genesis twenty-eight one. Jacob obeyed his father and his mother and was gone to Padanaram. And Esau, seeing that the daughters of Canaan pleased not Isaac his father, then went Esau unto Ishmael and took unto the wives which he had Mahalath or Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael. Abraham's son, the sister of Nabajoth, to be his wife. But he had already married two Hittite women. So this was just a vain attempt by Esau to please his parents. But that wasn't good enough. He had already violated the law. And his mother, Rebekah, understood and knew that Esau was a lawbreaker and also another wild man who could not be counted on to obey Yahweh's laws. So Yahweh knew this. That's why he said to Goyim, (laughs) two nations, not two Gentiles are in thy womb. But that could have been translated Gentiles also because the Hebrew word Goy, two Goyim are in thy womb and they will be separated from thy bowels. Two manner of people will be separated from you, and the elders shall serve the younger. So Rebecca knew there was something bad going on in her womb because they were already duking it out before they were even born. Okay? That's, yes, that's why they're such a damn curse. <laughs> well stated, Seven. Yeah, we, we, un, until that curse is removed, the curse of Esau, we will be forever until the judgment day, because we know the scriptures tell us that this curse will be removed at the judgment day. We will simply have to be patient. They're trying their best to destroy our race, but there's just too many of us. And too many of us Americans have guns. 
and they're doing their absolute best flooding our states and our big cities with non-whites to outvote us. But we are fighting back. It hasn't quite gotten to the shooting war yet, as the first American Revolution did, but it's getting there. It will happen because the Jews will never give up their war against Isaac. They will never give up their war against Jacob. Yet the Jews will state very openly that the Israeli state is there for the preservation of the Jewish people. Why can't we preserve our people? If the Jews can preserve their people, why can't we? That's because they're hypocrites. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy, and yet Judeo-Christians believe them to be God's chosen. To Isaac, God confirmed his purpose in the reiteration of the covenant promise made to Abraham, Genesis 26.3. The twins, Esau and Jacob, born to Isaac, were raised in the same prohibition against defiling their segregation. So, both of them knew this, yet Esau chose to defile Yahweh's wishes. Okay. Jacob obeyed his father and his mother and was gone to Badanmaram. And Esau, seeing that the daughters of Canaan pleased not Isaac his father, then went Esau unto Ishmael, but he still didn't give up his Hittite wives. Continuing, Esau, therefore, in taking the daughter of Ishmael, transgressed the command to remain separate. Uh, That is not exactly the case. It was his marriage to the Hittite women because Ishmael was still pure white. Certainly, in my opinion, and and most uh, identity scholars will argue that Ishmael was white, and so was Hagar. So uh, Finlay hasn't really done his research on this. He's just guessing that Ishmael was a non-white. And corruption entered his line. But the corruption had already entered Esau's line by marrying the Hittites. I don't see how he could miss that. The descendants of Esau, or Edomites as they are referred to in the scriptures, settled themselves on the southeast border of Palestine and on numerous occasions impinged on the history of Israel. Their final impingement was when they were subdued by the remnant which returned from the Babylonian captivity of Judah and were absorbed into the Jewish peoples. Well, this again is poorly stated. No, that is not what happened when the Judahites returned from the Babylonian captivity, Ezra and and Nehemiah instituted a rigorous segregation, a very rigorous segregation, and it is incorrect to refer to Judahites as Jews. The word Jew should be reserved for Jews and not for pure-blooded Judahites because the Jewish people are the most race mix on the face of the earth. Okay. So he believes the lie of Rabbi Wise when he says the return from Babylon created a new religion, namely Judaism. No, if you read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, they instituted rigorous racial segregation. They reinstituted the uh, the feast days, the Sabbath days. Every they reinstituted the Mosaic law, one hundred percent. So. Mr. Finlay has got this wrong as well. 
And he continues, this will be dealt with in detail in the chapter concerning Jews. You cannot confuse Jews with Judahites, which he is obviously doing here. So uh, W.G. Finlay, you needed to do more research. Obviously, your heart is in the right place because you're advocating for racial segregation, but you're, you're not paying really close attention to the book of Genesis here. Okay, so yeah, it, it was Esau taking the Hittite wives. That's what violated the law. Okay, then he states, Jacob did not defile his separation and obeyed his father and came to Laban, entering into his service for seven years for the hand of Rachel. Jacob's years at Haran, Genesis 29, are marked by the duplicity of Laban Laban, in substituting Leah for Rachel. Now, I wonder if this has happened in modern times where... You know, you marry, you go to the altar and marry a woman, and then suddenly you wake up the next morning and there's another woman there. What happened? Did I get that drunk that I don't even know who I lay with all night long? Well, that's what happened to uh, Jacob. (laughs) That is literally what happened to Jacob, folks. And so I can imagine that this uh, has happened uh, numerous times to men of our race in the interim between then and now. Uh, Swamp Fox states, uh, The firstborn was subsequently passed over by God in all critical times of history. And we find that Seth and not Cain was chosen. That's correct. It was Isaac and not Ishmael that counted for the true seed of Abraham. It was Jacob and not Esau that received the right of the firstborn under the election of God. Well, there was always a good reason for it. And even in the case of Judah, he he bore three sons from uh, the Canaanite woman. And even though he did not marry the Aramaic woman, she bore him uh, Pharaoh's and Zerah. And they became the, the true heirs because she was of the white race, where the Canaanite woman was not. So obviously Cain could not uh, do it because he was of the wrong race. He was of mixed race. But for many other reasons, the firstborn uh, were passed over in many cases, many, many cases. So... Uh, the question asked seven asks, do we know who Ishmael married? Uh, no, we don't. All we know is that he had 12 sons, probably of a, of a uh, Hamite, probably of a Hamitic woman. And uh, Clifton Emmeheiser had a big argument about this long ago because I was arguing that the Ishmaelites were white until very recent times. And he didn't believe me. So he did some digging on his own. He said, well, lo and behold, yeah, the Ishmaelites were white Arabs. They hadn't become dark yet. And uh, the evidence is in Scripture. They were white, although it's hard to say who the mother, who the wives of his 12 sons were. Okay. Nevertheless, they were white, so probably Hamitic. But they also could have been Shemitic as well, because the Hamites and the Shemites lived pretty much in the uh, Arabian desert. There were many nomadic Shemite tribes and many nomadic Hamite tribes, not just the ones in Egypt and in Palestine. 
So, but the Japhethites, by and large, had traveled north, and they became known as well the Slavs, the Poles, the uh, you know, many many northern tribes. Still, were permitted to marry them because obviously they're white. Okay, so it's not miscegenation to marry a white woman. Period. So, yeah, <laughs> Seven says, it happens all the time. <laughs> yeah, husband and wives get drunk on their wedding night and uh, have have offspring by some, who knows who. Okay. So, uh, Joseph, it was Joseph and not Reuben, yes. It was Pharaoh and not Zerah, yes. It was Ephraim and not Manasseh, yes. And Jacob uh, presided over that decision. The only way that you can ever account for God choosing the secondborn in preference to the firstborn is because Cain, being a firstborn from the womb of Eve, had placed a sin upon Adam's race. And not until the second Adam, Jesus Christ, was born of the Virgin Mary, was the curse lifted. Uh, I can see that. Uh, good point, Swamp Fox. Although um, uh, Dr. Wesley Swift has argued that Eve had to bear, uh, not seven children, but had to go through seven gestations because before her womb could be cleansed of the sin of race mixing. That's his argument, but he does not give the source for that information. Uh, he is said to have one of the biggest libraries of the ancient world that anybody ever possessed. But unfortunately, in his speeches... He did very little writing. He was mainly a lecturer and a sermonizer, he, and an outstanding one at that. He gave very few references in his sermons as to the sources of his information. That was left up to his followers, and there's precious little of that. So, so he talks about seven generations. So was, uh, uh, were there seven generations filled up until, who are we talking about? Who was the last one? Ephraim Manasseh? Is that seven generations? Someone would have to do uh, some research on that. And another uh, comment by Swamp Fox. His mother took Ishmael, a wife, out of the land of Egypt. Yeah, it says Egypt, so she's probably a Hamite. This wife of Ishmael was the mother of the 12 sons and one daughter. Very similar, right? Just as uh, Jacob had uh, 12 sons and one daughter. Of the later life, well, maybe because Ishmael was another uh, presage or a type, a type of Jacob, but didn't qualify. The Jacob obviously qualified. Of the later life of Ishmael, we know little. He was present with Isaac at the burial of Abraham. He died at the age of 137 years. But he was blessed. Ishmael was blessed. And he was not cursed until they began race mixing. In the uh, you know modern era, really, because the the so-called Arab culture, with its wonderful architecture and mathematics, flourished until they turned to Islam. It flourished until they turned to Islam, and they began taking slaves of other races. That's what happened. Okay, so let's get back to W. G. Finlay. So Finlay was a good teacher. But he had lots of flaws, as we can see. He didn't uh, do his research well, and later in life he became a Paul basher. He considered Paul to be a Jew because he didn't distinguish 
between Judahites and Jews. You have to distinguish between Judahites and Jews. They're not the same genome. The Judahites were pure-blooded, non-race-mixed descendants of Judah. Jews, on the other hand, descend from Edom and from Cain and from Canaan. Okay, so the history of Joseph and the jealousy of his brethren is well known, as is the story of the sale, his sale to the Ishmaelites. And the Ishmaelites treated him well. They, they sold him to the Egyptians, which they were probably related to, <laughs> right? Joseph betrayed, uh, betrayed and cast out by his brethren, was carried down into the land of Egypt where he was bought as a slave by an Egyptian captain of the Pharaoh's guard. After being now, these this Pharaoh was still a white man. After being tested and tempted by his master's wife, Joseph was cast into prison, from whence he rose to a place of prominence through his interpretation of the Pharaoh's dream. Question Would any of the other twelve sons, eleven sons, have been with able to withstand this temptation? Well, Judah demonstrated that he was not able to withstand it because he got drunk and lay with a Canaanite woman and he had three sons by her. His voice was heard throughout all the land and he became second only to the Pharaoh in authority. Very important lesson here, folks. If you obey Yahweh's laws, he will reward you. If you obey Yahweh's laws, he will reward you. Despite all of the trouble and turmoil he was put through by his own brothers. And you remember the dream he had? He had a dream that the sun and the moon <laughs> and, and, what was it, 11 stars bowed down to him? Whoa, uh, Joseph. You got one hell of an ego there. You think we're going to bow down to you? Ain't happening. Well, they did. They absolutely did. Okay. So, and then we know the whole uh, business about Pharaoh's dream, which Joseph interpreted. His voice was heard throughout all the land. He became second only to the Pharaoh in authority. Joseph married Azanath. Thank you for naming her, because not everybody names her the daughter of Potiphera, priest of An. There we go, priest of An, Genesis 41-45, an event which has raised the question of the continuance of the purity of the line of Abraham through Isaac. Okay. I think uh, he's going in the right direction here. Let's see how he navigates. All right, chapter 5, the Egyptian peoples. The marriage of Joseph to Azanoth was no refutation of the carefully preserved racial line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The assumption that Azanoth was a black-skinned woman of Egypt would contradict the whole scriptural narrative up to this point. Why, if Hagar's son Ishmael was rejected, was the marriage of the very... But see, Hagar was an Egyptian. So was Azanoth. The Egyptians are not the problem. The problem is that the Yahweh had already predetermined to whom the covenants would be made. 
And that's the reason why he rejected Ishmael, not because he was not white. Okay. So, and obviously, uh, Moses, in the Apocrypha, we're told that Moses was actually sent down to Ethiopia to be king there for a time because the, um, the pharaoh needed somebody to restore order to the place. The king had died, and by ritual, Moses should have married the woman, but it turned out she was a Canaanite woman, and Moses refused to lay with her. He did not consummate the marriage. The Apocrypha clearly tell us that. So he did not intermarry with the other races either. He continues, so this this was not so. Azanath was a white woman of the line of Mitzrayim, the son of Ham. Well, wasn't Hagar? Continuing, this statement immediately raises the subject of Ham and his supposed parentage of the black races of the world. That is a Jewish myth, folks. The scriptural narrative on which this supposition is based is the instance of Noah's drunkenness He's not the only. <laughs> How come so many of our patriarchs get drunk on their wedding nights? You think there should be a law against that? Anyway, this statement immediately raises the subject of Ham and his supposed parentage of the black races of the world. Now we have the drunkenness of Noah immediately after the flood. Well, it wasn't on his wedding night, right? It was He was just celebrating that the uh, ark had rested on solid ground. Hey, let's have a party! The consideration of the verses of the ninth chapter of Genesis concerning this event would prove profitable at this stage. Quote, And Noah began to be an husbandman, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine and was drunken, and he was uncovered within his tent. And Ham the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without. And Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both of their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were backward and they saw not their father's nakedness. And Noah woke awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall be he be unto his brethren. And the Canaanites were servants to the Israelites. And he said, Blessed be Yahweh Elohim of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. Okay? The prophecy that Japheth shall dwell in the tents of Shem was not fulfilled until modern history post A.D. history, when the Shemites and the line of Zerah Judah and Pharaoh's Judah became the kings and queens of Europe and began to rule over the Japhetic people of Europe. So that prophecy was fulfilled as well. Continuing, and he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem. Now, why would he curse Canaan? when Ham did the dirty deed. Now, it wasn't just involved in uh, seeing the nakedness of his father's body. I don't know if he goes into it. There is actually uh, the several verses in Leviticus that refer to this, the nakedness of 
thy mother is the nakedness of thy father. So what actually transpired here was Ham had an incestuous relationship with his mother. The offspring was Canaan. That's why Canaan was cursed. I'm sure Noah was very upset with Ham, but he didn't curse Ham. It has nothing to do with creating a new race out of the loins of two white people. Nothing like that at all. But, of course, this is what the Jews teach about this episode, that somehow Ham was black. That's what they teach. (laughs) J.K. says, Eli, at that time, they didn't have rape drugs and the whole psychotropic arsenal we have today. Imagine the mess. Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah, uh, I was just asking that question. I guess I, I struck a nerve when I asked the question, how many people in the modern world have gotten drunk and woken up with a different woman from the woman they went to the altar with? Yeah, I guess it happens pretty common. I guess it's pretty, I guess I have led a sheltered life. Anyway. But what really happened here was that Ham lay with his own mother and the offspring was Canaan. That's what happened, okay? And uh, here again, W.G. Finlay, although his basic arguments are sound, he, he didn't dig into the scriptures very deeply for his arguments. Obviously, his arguments that we are not to race mix is 100% correct, okay? He continues, there is no word or, nor suggestion in the scripture to justify the supposition that the curse of Noah embraced a change of skin pigmentation. <laughs> Further to this, the statement of Canaan being a servant of servants was of a social rather than a biological nature, as the words themselves imply. The supposition of the curse of Noah being a change of skin color is an illogical intrusion of conjecture into a perfectly lucid history. But even here, even if it was a change of skin color, it applied to Canaan, not to Ham. But the Jews say Ham was black. Consider the implications arising out of such a theory. It should be noted that there is no mention of the duration of the curse. The words forever are conspicuous by their absence. Well, the fact is, that Canaan married into the Kenite tribes, as is clearly stated in the scriptures, because the Canaanites, henceforth, were considered part of the Kenite tribes. The curse, therefore, was redeemable, uh, but it wasn't redeemed. It may have been redeemable, but it wasn't redeemed. Consider now the record of in St. Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, verses 17 to 21. Quote, And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of Yahweh is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering the sight of the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of Yahweh. And he began to say unto them, This day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears, unquote. And he requotes, deliverance to the captives, set at liberty them that are bruised, unquote. Well, I don't think this is a reference to Canaan. (laughs) Uh, Is that what he's trying to argue? 
in our Lord, all races have glorious liberty from the consequences of sin. Uh, well, the other, the other races, they have their own destiny. Uh, that's as far as I would go with that. Uh, unless he's unless he's appealing to Genesis twelve one through three, where all the nations of the world will be blessed because of Isaac. That does not mean that they will be have liberty from the consequences of sin. That's that's taking it a whole step further. The salvation of the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world, is free to all. No, it was only promised to Israel. <laughs> okay, so despite the fact that W.G. Finlay is a racial segregationist, that we see tremendous amounts of universalism in this book. In this book. Repentance and acceptance of him whose precious blood was shed for all. No, it wasn't. I come not but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Matthew chapter 15, he said, I do not want to convert those people. The message was not for all people. The message is only for Israel. So he's actually a universalist. I had never realized that. Now, maybe this is one of his early works, and he may have changed his mind later on, but uh, there's all kinds of problems with what he's teaching here. But let's continue. He says, there have been and still are many truly converted Negroes whose life work was dedicated to the service of the Lord. So he presumes. In my conversations with Pastor Martins, he has attempted to convert Negroes and it has never worked. So maybe his uh, his experience, maybe W.G. Finlay's experience with Negroes was uh, not quite as thorough as Pastor Martins. But they have remained Negroes, both in physical makeup and skin color. Surely if the color change were the consequence of Noah's curse for the sin perpetrated by Ham, this curse would be removed at the moment of the rebirth and acceptance of Christ. Well, I wouldn't go that far either, right? So, wow, I had no idea that W.G. Finlay uh, had this much universalism in his teachings. And he continues, the Negro remains Negroid as he was created by the Father of all mankind, Almighty God. Yes, he was, and so shall they remain. The leopard cannot change its spots. The scriptural references pertaining to the synonymity of Cushite and Ethiopian may not be overlooked. Cush was the first son of Ham, Genesis 10.6. And significant is the fact that only one son, the youngest, <laughs> Canaan was mentioned in connection with the curse. Yeah, well, that's because he did the dirty with his mother. Ham did the dirty with his mother, and Canaan was the offspring. Ethnological designation of certain African tribes as dark Caucasian, too, may not be overlooked. Equally important is the name Hamitic as separate to purebred Negro. Now, of course, uh, if you're talking about the Ethiopians, the word Ethiopian means sunburnt faces. So only white people get sunburned. So that is not necessarily, they aren't Negro. They lived in Africa, the African Kush, yes. But that does not make them Negroes. He can, continues, the Caucasian is the ethnological designation for the white races. 
and the reference to dark Caucasian immediately raises the question of origin. As the name applies to certain tribes in the vast continent of Africa, a consideration of the indigenous people of the land will provide the basis from which the dark Caucasian stems. Now, first of all, the Hamites were not indigenous to Africa, neither were the Shemites, because the Shemites moved down there as well. That does not make them indigenous to Africa. The Negroes were indigenous to Africa. The name Negro is a distinctive appellation for one of the basic racial groups of the world. His natural habitat was, and still is, the wide strip of land extending from the west coast of Africa to the Sudan. The northern and southern boundaries were roughly the Sahara Desert and the Congo. Other indigenous tribes of Africa were the Bushmen, the Hottentots, and the Pygmies. The intrusion of the name Hemetic as applicable to certain African tribes is descriptive of the Cushite migration and the invasion of Negro land at the end of the Pluvial Age, circa 2300 BC. So he's talking about the white Hamites invading Africa. This invasion of the Cushite descendants of Ham added a new physical element into Africa, a new racial element, and this by virtue of miscegenation. Why was the eldest son of Ham should be responsible for miscegenation remains a mystery. For it was Canaan and not Cush who was cursed. Yes, it was Canaan who was cursed. The, this, the racial admixture of the Cushite descendants of Ham with the indigenous Negro peoples created the many and varied physical aspects of the so-called native or African today. Skin texture was altered, creating a wide range from light brown to red-black. But the dominant racial characteristic of the Negro, his hair, remained as a witness to the origin of the species. And certainly the Negroid skeleton, the broad noses, the thick lips, etc. Only in the Ethiopian blacks, I think they're, you know, the dope smoking, the dope smokers, I forget what they call themselves, uh, you know, that moved to Haiti, uh, they have very white skeletal structure in their faces, but you can also see very much Negroid features as well. So, you know, he, he's basically on point here. Uh, but, uh, yeah, and Moses, yeah, thanks, Swamp Fox. Moses was not an Egyptian, and Zipporah was not black. Zipporah was the woman in, uh, uh, of the Arabian Kush that Moses married, and she was she was a Shemite. She was definitely a Shemite because her father is in the line of Shem, as the Bible clearly records. All right. So, okay, getting back to this document, which I'm surprised at how many errors W.G. Finlay makes here. Anyway, uh, Professor Eugene Pittard, professor of anthropology at the University of Geneva, in his ethnological introduction to history entitled Race and History, provides an authoritative beginning to a brief consideration of the races of Egypt in respect to the subject of the racial origin of Azanath, the wife of Joseph. Professor Pittard presents the findings of Champollion, the well-known Egyptologist, that he's the guy who deciphered Egyptian script, of the picture of the races of Egypt. The picture is derived from the tombs of Biban el Moloch, Valley of Kings. This depicts four distinct families of the human race as occupying the land or impinging on the history of the land. 
The following is an extract from Professor Petard's book, taken from page 413, under the subheading of The Egyptians. Quote, Champollion has given the well-known picture of the human races of ancient Egypt after the paintings in the royal tombs of the Valley of Kings. These men, led by the shepherd of the Horus peoples, belonged to four distinct families. The first, nearest to God, were of the dark red color, well-proportioned and with gentle physiognomy, slightly, slightly aquiline nose, long plaited hair and clothed in white. Legend has given these folk the name of uh, Rot and Nemrome, the human race, the men par excellence, that is to say, the Egyptians. There is no doubt whatever about him who comes next. He belongs to the Negro race, known under the general theme of Nahasi, usually referred to as Nubians in most of the literature. The next one presents a very different aspect. His skin is fresh-colored, verging on yellow. He is bronzed, with a strongly aquiline nose and a thick black-pointed beard, and wears a short garment of many colors. This race bears the name Amu, Asiatics. Finally, the last has the skin color what we call fresh-colored or white-skinned in its most delicate tint, and is very tall and slim. He is clothed in an undressed bullock hide. This race is called Tamahu Europeans. So apparently the pharaoh that we're dealing with may have been one of the so-called shepherd kings, which there was a point uh, before Moses came to Egypt that the Hittites had made a league with the Egyptians and intermarried with him, with them. Joseph, the pharaoh of Joseph was pure white. The pharaoh of Moses was not. He was part Hittite. That, that would account for the slightly aquiline nose. Continuing. Egypt, rich in the treasures of the history of man, has of recent years yielded many of its secrets. The sequence of the occupancy of the different races is slowly being unraveled. Professor Petard provides the sequence as follows. First, the red race occupied the land from the south. Uh, I'm not sure if, uh, if, that's the, if that's the case. It could be. The Sudan. Second, the Negroid race forced the red race out, hence their migration to the Americas. Third, the Asiatic migrations and peaceful settlement among the Negroid race. Fourth, the invasion of the white race and the division of the land into what was known as Upper Egypt and Lower Egypt. The name, and this is the professor's opinion, might be correct. The name Mitzrayim became associated with the land of Egypt with the influx of the white race. Both secular history and the holy scriptures use this name or other derivations to designate the land. The scriptures use it no less than 86 times, Unger's Dictionary. Herbert Bruce Hannay, in his book European and Other Race Origins, and Professor T.K. Chain, in his Land of, Mitz of the Mitzrayim, tell of the introduction of the Mitzrayimites into Egypt. Of the descendants of Mitzrayim, Hannay states that they were a white-skinned, ruddy-complexioned, black-haired, but also often fair or red-haired, straight-profiled, regular-featured race. Of the advent of the people into Egypt, Hannay states, in the advent of the Nile Valley, the 
of the fair Mitzrayic settlers, they found the country inhabited by a small, short, dolicocephalic, dark-haired, black-eyed, glabrous, brunette race. <laughs> okay. Dolicocephalic, I think, means long-headed, vertically long-headed. Uh, uh, does, doesn't say unless brunette is the color of their skin. Uh, the color of their skin is that unless he's talking about the color of their hair. Does anybody know what glabrous means? <laughs> okay. Uh, haven't encountered that word before. Glabrous. And uh, yes, okay. J.K. said the schnoz may have been a result of the mixing of the Negroes and Asians, not to be mistaken with a white hook nose. Well, there are some people, you know, there are some whites who have a slightly hooked nose. Nothing like the Jews. Absolutely nothing like the Jews. Uh, you see that often, uh, not really often, but among some Greeks and among some Romans of the ancient world, but not very many. Could be that you know they were mixed with uh, with Edomites. That's because the Edomites got around, right? Uh, even Rothschild is said to be the father of Adolf Hitler, right? <laughs> I don't agree with that, but that's what some people say. Anyway, getting back to races and chaos. All right, so yeah, this is fairly honest reporting by these authors. You don't get this kind of honest reporting from modern archaeologists because the Jews have totally taken control of that field of inquiry. So, now, of the invasion of the Mitzrayimites, Mitzrayimites, apart from the invasion itself, very little little is recorded. The Egyptian record provides the king lists of those who ruled the land as a whole up to the 6th dynasty. But after this, a period of darkness covers the names of the rulers and nothing is known of them. Of the conditions obtaining in the land, however, a struggle between two opposing factions is mentioned. The strangers from the north seeking to penetrate into the heart of the country and the inhabitants holding them at bay. The end came when an agreement of peaceful coexistence was established. The Mitzrayimites settled themselves in the north, occupying the region of the Nile Delta, where they established and built the sun city of Heliopolis. And I believe that was where the priesthood of An was located. Which in the scriptures is oh yeah, which in the scriptures is referred to as An. The great temple was also erected in this city, and the worship of Ra, the sun god, eventuated from this. Hanay points out that the name Ra or Re may have been derived from the name of Mitzrayim, and or Mitzrayim, as is sometimes written. Hanay states, quote, thus, thus Mitzrayim or Mitzrayim perhaps means nothing more or less than the children of Ra, the light or the sun. Now, it may there may be a little more to this. A lot of the ancient scholars assumed that they were sun worshippers, but I believe they understood that the sun was created by the god, right? And that the, the consciousness of the god lies behind the sun, so they weren't necessarily sun worshippers, but there was a larger spiritual entity behind our sun and other suns as well. So I think they're selling the Egyptians short here. But in any case, be that as it may, the fact remains that the Mitzrayimites built the city of Heliopolis and the temple. 
The Egyptian record referred to in M.E. Harkness's book, Egyptian Life and History, tells of the end of the peaceful coexistence and the rising tide of uneasiness and conflict. How this was quelled is not given, but one Mekhtera, Men-tu-hotep, a Mitzrayimite, emerged as the ruler of both Upper and Lower Egypt, establishing a central government at Thebes, which had been situate in Lower Egypt. On his death, he was succeeded by Amenemhat I, whose record of conditions during his lifetime is preserved to us on a leather scroll. The writing tells of internal strife and a continued conspiracy to dethrone him. This conspiracy came from those who live in the south. Amenemhat was succeeded by his son Usertazen, who erected a memorial within the precincts of the temple at An, the purpose of which is not described. This memorial is today to be seen on the Thames Embankment and is known as Cleopatra's Needle. It was moved from Egypt to London. During the reigns of succeeding kings of Egypt to the 14th dynasty, Egypt is depicted as a land of many peoples living in concord with each other. The tomb of Rekhma-Ra has yielded a colored portrait of the races inhabiting Egypt during his lifetime, and they are the Negro, the Libyan, the Mitzrayimite, and the Asiatic. So the Mitzrayimite being the white. These people were all called Egyptians, this being an appellation of the domicile rather than a racial designation. In the 14th dynasty was the 14th dynasty was brought to an end by the invasions of the Hyksos peoples. Much consideration is given by students to this invasion of the Hyksos, for the Egyptian record falls silent with their arrival, and with the exception of the com- comet of the 15th and 16th dynasties under their reign, nothing else is known of them. Exactly what brought about a change in the 17th dynasty is not revealed. But the record recommences with a double or joint state, the Hyksos kings ruling in the south from Memphis and the Mitzrayimites ruling from from Thebes. The coalition did not last, if indeed it was a coalition. (laughs) It might have been simply a takeover of the south. However, and when Amis, the Mitzrayimite, ascended to the throne at Thebes, he overthrew the Hyksos and the double crown of Egypt came once again into the hands of Mitzrayim. The religious worship of Egypt had a wide variety of expressions. While the temple at Heliopolis continued throughout the turbulent centuries with its worship of Ra, other expressions of deity were founded by the varied population. Yeah, and I'm sure the different groups that worship different gods fought amongst each other, no doubt about that. Into these circumstances, Joseph came when he was sold to the captain of the Pharaoh's guard. The ruling house was of the Mitzrayimite line, as was the priesthood of the temple worship at Heliopolis or An. Joseph, after his elevation to virtual ruler, married the daughter of the priest of An, a Mitzrayimite. Recapitulating the description of the Mitzrayimites who invaded Egypt, as given by both Hannah and Professor Chain, they were white-skinned, ruddy-complexioned, black and often red-haired. And uh, King Tut had red hair, absolutely no doubt about it. With this description and the history provided above, the daughter of the priest of An was acceptable as part of the people through whom God's blessing would ultimately come, because they were Adamites. 
Biologically, both Joseph and Azanath were the same. Yeah, they were Adamites. To Joseph, the sons Ephraim and Manasseh were born by Azanath, the daughter of the priest of An. Chances are she could either be a Hamite or her line could go all the way directly from Enoch uh, through either one of uh, Noah's three sons. But, you know, it could be a Sh- she could be a Shemite. A Hamite, not likely a Japhethite, because the Japhethites all moved north. Today, two obelisks from the Temple of An are landmarks in two separate lands, peopled by a people who bear all the marks of identity of Ephraim and Manasseh. Today, on the Thames Embankment in Cent- and in Central Park, New York, these two monuments of stone are a reminder to our nations of God's faithfulness to us. Good point, Mr. Finley. Very good point. All right, so there was more to offer. Uh, his brethren came first. Uh, okay, hold on, hold on. All right, so I, I think I lost, uh, I skipped the paragraph. Okay, so yeah, so this is the, uh, the circumstances into which Joseph entered Egypt. Continuing. Joseph, firmly established in the land of Egypt and having under the guidance of Yahweh, stored up food against the famine which ravaged the whole of the Middle East, now awaited the consummation of God's purpose in sending him down to Egypt. His brethren came first, and ultimately Jacob himself arrived in Egypt to be greeted by his son, and provision was made for their sojourn in the region of the Nile Delta, the land of Goshen. Quote, And Pharaoh spake unto Joseph, saying, Thy father and thy brethren are come unto thee. The land of Egypt is before thee. In the best of the land make thy father and brethren to dwell. In the land of Goshen let them dwell. Unquote. Genesis 4, 5 and 6. Sorry, Genesis 47, verses 5 and 6. There was more to the offer of the Pharaoh than the promise of good fertile land. It should be recalled that this was the land of Goshen and a people of their own race. This would explain how, in the short period of 400 years, Usher's chronology, the population of Israel rose to nearly 2 million. I think there's a typo here. Maybe it's supposed to be 21 million, because when the Israelites uh, left Egypt under Moses, they were 2 million souls. So probably 21 million, hard to say. There's a typo here. Genesis 46, 27. And at the numbering of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai, they totaled 603,550 males from and over the age of 20. Numbers 1, 2, and verse 46. The wives and children are not numbered. And Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt, in the country of Goshen, and they, and they had possessions therein, and grew and multiplied exceedingly. Genesis 47, 27. During this period of Israel's growth, the throne changed hands, and a new line ruled the land. The Pharaoh, who knew not Joseph, afflicted the children of Israel. The new dynasty was not of the Mitzrayimic line, and the pent-up feelings of the Negroid races was expressed in this affliction. Uh, actually, uh, the, the history says, as I mentioned earlier, that there was a league made between 
the Egyptians and the Hittites. And uh, the time was not yet for the blacks. And the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage and mortar. And, well, the Hittites have done it to us again, have they not? And in all manner of service in the field, all their service wherein they made them serve was with vigor. Yeah, work and pay your taxes so we can give your tax money to the blacks who don't have to work. But they will vote Democratic, don't you know, and overthrow you. We can wait. During this period of Israel's growth, the throne changed hands and a new line ruled the land. The Pharaoh who knew not Joseph afflicted the children of Israel. The oppression of the children of Israel in Egypt was the last phase of the preparation of God's instrument nation. Having been created and schooled in the most rigid form of segregation, they were now learning the purpose in this. It was not for racial domination. In the hard school of the Egyptian experience, Israel learned the lesson of oppression. Well, still, uh, Genesis uh, chapter 1 talks about dominion. And uh, the white race was dominant uh, ever since you know, we came out of Palestine. No doubt about that. And uh, we will be dominant again, but we're not, uh, we're not to, to rule with uh, you know, with evil and violence, we're to rule with justice. When this lesson had been absorbed and the abhorrence of oppression and tyranny had become a part of the soul life of this people, God moved in their liberation. Yeah, well, we learn how to be compassionate towards others when uh, you know when we ourselves have to endure that sort of thing. The future national existence of Israel was a life governed by the overall factor of separation and segregation and, of course, obedience to Yahweh's laws. There was to be no question of a heron folk. The very soul of this people would now rebel at any thought of the subjugation of peoples. Well, the Israelites were told after the 40 years wandering in the desert to take over the land of Palestine. They called Canaan in those days, and they were forced. You know, we were forced. We were told to exterminate all of them, but we didn't do that, and we put them under tribute instead. So this was the beginning of the downfall of the twelve tribes in Palestine, because instead of ruling over them, we put them under tribute. I'm sorry. Instead of getting rid of them and eliminating the seed line of Cain altogether. We allowed the seed line of Cain to exist. Now we're paying the price for that. And then he quotes, A peculiar people, a separate people, an isolated nation created to demonstrate the righteousness of God in race relationships. That is correct. Quote, When thy judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness, and the work of righteousness shall be peace, and the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever." Unquote. Isaiah 26, 9 and 32, 17. Now this can certainly be taken in the spirit of Genesis 12, 3, where all of the genomes, mishpacha, will uh, learn that the descendants of Abraham, uh, the descendants of Abraham will be a blessing to the world. They will learn that. That does not mean that they will become righteous. It's simply saying, that we'll be, we will be a blessing. That's all it says. Okay, 
with about six minutes left, we can go into chapter 6, Moses the lawgiver. Moses, the leader of the lawgiver of Israel, married an Ethiopian woman. And Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman, Numbers 12.1. Much confusion reigns concerning this marriage of Moses, and information surrounding the exact origin of his wife is lacking. In most Bible dictionaries, the similarity between Sipporah, the daughter of Jethro, the Midianite, and the Ethiopian woman are taken to mean the one and the same person. But the Midianites were, in those days were still pure-blooded descendants of Shem. So Zipporah was a Shemite. Unger's Bible Dictionary states that the reference to Moses' wife as being an Ethiopian does not necessarily mean the modern Ethiopia, but could mean the Arabian Ethiopia or the Arabian Kush. The point as to the origin of Moses' wife, however, is merely academic. It does not alter the fact that he married a woman who was not of Israel or the same race, and therefore, in a sense, the condemnation of Miriam and Aaron was just. not sure what he's saying here. Let me continue. This condemnation was rewarded by God, who told both Miriam and Aaron, in effect, that they should rather concern themselves with their own calling and leave Moses and his life to him. (laughs) All right, so he basically told them to shut up. Okay, well... They objected to uh, Zipporah because they did not consider her to be a Shemite, but she was. Okay. Moses' sons. After Moses had killed and buried an Egyptian because of his maltreatment of an Israelite, he fled to Midian, Exodus 2.15. Here he married Zipporah, who bore him a son, Gershom. Eleazar, the second son, was born at some later date not given. After Moses had received his commission from God, given at Horeb, he took his wife and two sons and set out for Egypt. Exodus 4.20 Zipporah and her sons, however, did not arrive in Egypt. En route, Moses was in danger of death, but on the circumcision of his son was spared. The sons and his wife had much to do with this threat, as the subsequent events seem to suggest. They were sent back to Jethro, and Moses continued down into Egypt alone. He was rejoined by his family at Rephidim, Exodus 18.2. After this reunion, Zipporah and her sons are not again mentioned as having any portion in Israel, and certainly no place of authority. When Moses died, Joshua took over the leadership, and Moses' sons passed into obscurity. Okay, so that's pretty well stated. Although he does not mention the fact that Zipporah was, in fact, a Shemite descended from Midian. The Midians were descended from Shem. So all you have to do is check your records (laughs) in the Old Testament. So this document, this book that W.G. Finlay wrote, a lot of it is speculation. A lot of it is correct speculation, but he does make uh, some rather glaring mistakes Uh, in his documentation, because he does not really go to the Bible to double-check his statements. And I'm really disappointed about that, because uh, with regard to the, you know, subsequent events, you know, the history of Israel, and the distinction between the Israelites and the other races of the world, 
he's he's spot on. He uh, but he still he uses the word Jew in a dualistic sense as referring to modern Jews and Judahites, and you can't do that. They're not the same people. So it's better not to use the word Jew at all. In, in the Old Testament, it's always Judah. In the New Testament, it's Judean because it was a country of two genomes, primarily Judahites and Edomites, plus a smattering of others. So it's a territorial word. And so you should use the word Judean, not Jew, or nor Judah, because the Judahites were a specific tribe of the Adamic race. The Edomites were of the Kenite race, descended from Cain. They're two separate groups of people that were, were forced into living in the same territory. Okay? They were balkanized. They were balkanized by Herod, Antipater, and Julius Caesar. So you cannot refer to these people as Judah. Judean is the correct expression. But today's modern Jews descend from these Edomites, the Sephardic branch. So you can use the word Jew regarding the New Testament if you can prove that you're not talking about both Judahites and Edomites. If you're exclusively talking about Edomites, then you can use the word Jew in the New Testament. But even there, you'd really have to check the context. Certainly the Pharisees, the vast majority of them were Edomites. There were a couple of exceptions. Nicodemus was an exception. <laughs> Swamp Fox says, Moses was not an Egyptian and Zipporah was not black. Very good. Thank you. <laughs> that settles it. All right. That is the case. Right? Okay. So, we see that uh, W.G. Finlay, who was you know, a, a racial segregationist from South Africa, uh, there's a lot of errors in his work. And maybe this is why he became a Paul basher in his later life, because he fails to distinguish with, between Judah and Jew. You cannot make the, such a mis, major mistake. That's, that's a horrible mistake. Anyway, thank you. Praise Yahweh. See you all next time. Yahweh bless. Bye-bye.